break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 16th of August, 2021. Very happy to be back with you on the show, and we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, and some secret meetings she seems to be having. We're going to be relating some death penalty news from the deep south of the United States. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to be talking about the terrible toll of the war in Afghanistan. With the U.S. war and occupation in Afghanistan effectively over, now is a good time to look back on the terrible toll of that conflict. As much as many will try to swiftly move on, it's important to recognize not only the death and destruction, but that U.S. officials past and present deserve to be held accountable for unleashing such a hellacious reality onto Central Asia. The principal cost, of course, is the human cost. According to the Brown University Cost of War Project, 241,000 people died in the Afghanistan war, including the less discussed Pakistan theater of that conflict. They count 71,344 direct civilian deaths. As they note, this does not reflect, quote, deaths caused by disease, loss of access to food, water, infrastructure, and other indirect consequences of the war, end quote. So the death toll is ultimately quite higher. Some say as high as 360,000, but likely we will never know the true death toll. 2,442 U.S. soldiers died and 84,191 opposition fighters were killed. That latter number could also hide some civilian deaths as well because U.S. drone and airstrike policies were fairly lax on determining, quote unquote, combatants. Daniel Hale who blew the whistle on the secrets of the U.S. drone program and was recently jailed for that act, revealed that in the drone program, anyone who appeared to be male and over 16 was considered a legitimate target. And in many ways, it could be hard to remember now, but it really was the drone war in Afghanistan and Pakistan that was the catalyst for the flying robot warfare that has now swept the globe. According to the United Nations, Three and a half million Afghans have been internally displaced in the conflict, and there are over two million Afghan refugees registered abroad. Since most of the wealthy NATO nations take a very small number of refugees, 90% of those refugees are in Iran and Pakistan, two million in total. Yet Western nations cheer for the 20 or 30,000 odd refugees allowed to enter countries like the U.S. and Canada. Much mention was made of Bagram Air Force Base closing down in the last months of the U.S. presence. But very, very few of those stories mention Bagram's long history as a torture chamber and black site. Detainees died from brutal torture, many of them innocent. As the Guardian newspaper notes, quote, even after the U.S. government stopped the most brutal torture techniques, the military continued to run a secret black jail on the site where prisoners were subjected to sleep deprivation, cold, forced nudity, and other mistreatment, end quote. There was also the early CIA black site named Cobalt, which even the CIA itself described as a dungeon where they perfected torture techniques in the early 2000s. 
One visitor said he had never seen detainees so sensory deprived upon seeing the facility. Forced rectal feeding, people being hung from their hands from bars for days, total darkness and more were all features of CIA prisons in Afghanistan. The CIA also backed various militias who summarily executed people, burned children alive, and tortured detainees. The U.S. spent, according to the Cost of War study, $2.26 trillion on the war in Afghanistan, not including long-term costs of veteran care or interest on money borrowed to fund the war, so it's easily going to be billions of dollars more. Just to give you some perspective, the total infrastructure funding gap in the U.S., the amount of money it would take to bring all infrastructure up to par in the United States, is $2.5 trillion. So essentially, the war in Afghanistan costs enough money to fix almost every infrastructure problem in America. From the $70 billion backlog in repairs, it has turned a lot of our public housing into virtual slums. The $434 billion that would be needed to get the lead out of our water. And the $125 billion that would keep our bridges from collapsing. Ultimately, it's impossible to truly quantify what was lost in the Afghan war and occupation. But it is worth remembering, it was all for nothing. U.S. officials never had any real objectives and rejected a deal for bin Laden that could have prevented any conflict at all. These are not nameless, faceless crimes. The U.S. administrations that plunged us in and kept us in these wars are guilty of war crimes, and they need to be held responsible. Despite the long-term decline in support for the death penalty and executions in the United States, the states that are left are feverishly trying to do everything they can to get the death machine roaring. Alabama and Mississippi have recently announced moves that show they are trying to get their execution processes, derailed by complications with their barbaric methods of killing, back on track. Alabama has announced they've finished their new death chamber that is set up to use the never-before-tried method of choking someone to death with nitrogen gas, nitrogen hypoxia as it's known more clinically. As the Death Penalty Information Center lays out, quote, In a nitrogen hypoxia execution, the prisoner would breathe pure nitrogen, depriving his or her body of oxygen and causing asphyxiation. Alabama is one of the three states, along with Oklahoma and Mississippi, that authorizes nitrogen hypoxia as an execution method, but no state has performed an execution using it. As the Death Penalty Information Center Executive Director Robert Dunham told Newsweek, quote, in a very real sense, execution by nitrogen hypoxia is experimental. It has never been done before, and no one has any idea whether it's going to work the way its proponents say it will. And there's no way to test it because it's completely unethical to experimentally kill someone against their will, end quote. So whoever is killed first using this method, and there is at least one person at risk of that happening relatively soon, would be a guinea pig and could die in excruciating fashion which seems more likely than not. In Arizona's last gas chamber execution, which was not nitrogen hypoxia, but similar concept of choking someone with gas, the man executed, Walter Legrand, displayed, quote, agonizing choking and gagging and took 18 minutes to die, the Tucson citizen reported at the time. The witness room fell silent as a mist of gas rose, much like steam in a shower, and Walter Legrand became enveloped in a cloud of cyanide vapor. He began coughing violently, three or four loud hacks, and made a gagging sound before falling forward. It's also worth noting Arizona is trying to bring back that gas chamber using cyanide to kill people. Mississippi has announced that they have found a supply of the drug midazolam for use in their lethal injection cocktail prepared by a shady compounding pharmacy because it's almost now impossible 
to get drugs to kill people because pharmaceutical companies say executions are not approved uses. And they sue states, including Nevada right now, for trying to use the drugs that are often obtained illegally or prepared in a homebrew-like fashion from these compounding pharmacies. Midazolam has been linked to brutal executions across the country that have been described as the chemical equivalent of burning at the stake. Also in Alabama, the appeals court ruled that Brandon Mitchell can be executed. Despite lower courts ruling, he could not because in his case, the jury ruled 10 to 2 that he should get a life sentence. But the judge overruled them and imposed a death sentence. Alabama was the last state to ban this practice in 2017, and it is now considered unconstitutional. These overrides in Alabama were controversial because they always went up in election years. Alabama's judges are elected, and it was used almost exclusively in cases where the victims were white despite white victims being the minority of murder victims. Mr. Mitchell is black. 30 people in Alabama and Florida, despite both states banning the practice, are still on death row because of judicial overrides of jury-imposed life sentences. These sorts of obvious, brutal methods and injustices are the driving force behind the decline in support for the death penalty here in the United States, which is at its lowest level since the mid-1970s. And 60% of people in the U.S. say they prefer life sentences to the death penalty, and the number of new death sentences is at a multi-decade low. In the past year, Virginia and Colorado have abolished the death penalty, but the outlier states and really outlier counties within those states are as bloodthirsty as ever. And as you can see with the Alabama and Mississippi examples, ready to go to great and gruesome lengths to put people to death. (laughs) Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen who was formerly the head of the Federal Reserve, took some flack during her confirmation hearings for engaging in the typical practice of top government officials after they leave office, cashing in on their expertise and ties by working for the same major businesses they regulated or oversaw in government. Yellen disclosed more than $7 million in speaking fees, primarily from big Wall Street firms. In three days in 2019, she banked $651,600 from Citigroup for giving speeches, for instance. How these sorts of ties and conflicts of interest may be playing out in her work now as Treasury Secretary is, of course, a topic of great interest, which is why it's very notable, as Wall Street on Parade has detailed, that in the first three months on the job, Yellen blacked out 73 calls or meetings on her appointment calendar when it was released to the public. Is she talking to her banker buddies? And about what? The Treasury is certainly intimately involved in the Fed's sweetheart loan deals and backdoor bailouts, that's for sure. It's even more notable because Yellen really was not forthcoming when she disclosed her speaking fees, releasing information from only 2019 and 2020. When it is documented, she made a range of speeches in 2018. She spoke to the investment services firm Jeffries Group that year, for instance, and after the official event, spoke to a private event at the home of the guy who runs the place. She also spoke in a major conference in D.C. put on by Charles Schwab, but did not mention those or how much she got paid. She does, however, list on her disclosure form J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Carlisle Investment Management, and the, quote, sources of compensation exceeding $5,000 a year category. So how much did they pay her? And for what? And are executives and board members at those institutions part of those redacted meetings? Of course, she could be redacting all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons. But given the intense conflicts of interest she has with Wall Street and the importance to the public of knowing who may be acting secretly on behalf of people they hope to also reemploy them after this stint in government, it's worth asking. Who was Janet Yellen talking to in those 73 meetings? That's the punch out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.